Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. My guest today is Stephen Herod Booner. He's the senior researcher for the Foundation for Gaian Studies, described as both an earth poet and a bardic naturalist. He's an award-winning author of 19 books, including The Lost Language of Plants, The Secret Teachings of Plants, and Sacred Plant Medicine. Stephen is also the best-selling author of Herbal Antibiotics. His work has appeared or been profiled in publications throughout North America and Europe, including Mother Earth News, The Lampeteer, Review, Spirituality and Health, The New York Times, CNN, and Good Morning America. He lives in Silver City, New Mexico, where he's currently experiencing a monsoon. Stephen, welcome back to Conversations. Hi, thanks for having me on today. <laughs> it is lovely to have you on. And Stephen, I have to say, you have outdone yourself with plant intelligence in the imaginal realm. Thank Not you. only uh, do I think it's uh, brilliant, I said earlier, I thought it was one of the best books I've read in years, but it's also so well-written and poetic. And you, you're able to capture things that aren't describable, and uh, I just really appreciate the art that uh, went into making this book, and I hope people will will pick up a copy of Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm. Great. Thanks so much. For yeah. That. Oh, my pleasure, really. Let's, let's start out with talking about the prevailing uh, linear, reductionist, anthropocentric, mind-based, hierarchical worldview and the cost that um, that particular myopic perspective has on the relationship with the earth, with humans, and with life itself? A small question there to start with. <laughs> A tiny question. <laughs> well, that viewpoint sort of came into its major form in the late 19th century in England. It had been developing ever since the Enlightenment, but... As time went on, it seems like the most reactionary members of that movement began to take over and dominate the dialogue. And eventually what we got to was this sort of ridiculous place that was looking at the world as sort of a backdrop across which we were the only intelligent species that were able to move. And it was real linear, real ABC. And... It seemed to work for about a century, even though Einstein and a number of other people in the early 20th century were already talking about things that would undermine that reductive frame. But nevertheless, it gives human beings a sense of a great deal of power because then the world's sort of this, you know, ball of resources that we can pull from indefinitely and then use in whatever we want, the way we want. The problem is, at this point, that model is breaking down considerably because it's not really accurate to the world. There's a lot more going on than physics and biology, that old reductive frame. And probably the most damaging part, I really think, that has come from it, not only 
does it damage the earth because it views it in such an incorrect manner, but it views human beings as simply a bunch of chemical reactions at core, and it leaves out in you know the capacity to feel, the capacity to love, the capacity to have empathy, the aesthetic sense, and all of those things when they're left out, things just begin to go awry. I think that's one of the main reasons human beings, especially in uh, the United States, take so many antidepressants. Yeah, good point. Well, let's talk a little further on that about how um, how your view of science and culture and our perception of the world today, um, you know, you talk about how it limits our awareness, and it's really like our awareness seems to be in a tube or a funnel uh, getting narrower and narrower within the constraints of our language, our culture, and such. Talk a little bit about that, how that works on the limiting of the awareness. Well, one of the things that's fundamental is that every biological organism that we inhabit this planet with is extremely intelligent. They all possess language, they all possess culture, they all engage in tool-making, they all engage in forward thinking. Nearly all of them have a strong sense of their kin and they pass on knowledge. And whether we're talking about viruses or bacteria or plants, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're sort of used to seeing um, larger animals as being sort of like us. But this, you know, the bacterial researchers that are working now are extremely clear that bacteria possess an intelligence and a tool-making capacity far superior to our own, that they're highly sentient creatures. So, you know, one of the, if, when you cut all of that out and you reduce everything down to us being the only intelligent actor, one of the main things that happens is that we are kind of trapped inside of our own house. We look out at the windows at a world with which we can have no meaningful contact. And and so people are always sort of self-censoring themselves. The world has a tendency to engage in communication. The other organisms on the planet interact with each other consistently and tremendously and when we're touched by those outside intelligences we don't really have a metaphor or a model inside of ourselves to explain it but further because of the software that we've been given that nothing's intelligent out there we craft behaviors toward bacteria for instance that are extremely damaging to the planet and also ourselves i mean uh, we believed that we could use antibiotics and it would just end up with no disease for human beings. But what it's really done is it's caused the evolutionary um, expansion of bacteria in ways that reductionists never even imagined. We're facing the kind of diseases that we haven't seen in centuries, really. Yeah, I, th I thought it was uh, very humbling at uh, some point in your book that you uh, took us from uh, uh, evolving from monkeys down to evolving from bacteria as our primary uh, model for humanity. Uh, talk about bacteria and self-organizing systems and explain um, uh, how that works, how they work. Well, the weird thing is, you know, we're, we've all been taught, I think, 
everybody in the United States has a bad case of physics and the you know we're all we're all trying to get everything that we do to be you know this fundamental thing like physics or like chemistry or something but the truth of the matter is that the universe engages in a lot of fundamental behaviors that haven't been recognized by the more reductive groups and one of those is self-organization and it's you know this the universe seems to engage in the spontaneous generation of self-organized biological organisms and uh, that really kind of plays havoc with that old reductive thing for instance if researchers begin packing a closed container with molecules, there's this moment which can never be predicted where all of a sudden all of the molecules will tightly bond together and begin acting as one coordinated unified whole. And it, as soon as that happens, it begin, they begin to develop behaviors. Um, something more than the sum of the parts comes into being. And that's a fundamental dynamic here that happens. Every time some biological organism reaches some sort of a, a critical point, it will self-organize. And you can examine all the parts, but there's always something more than the sum of the parts that comes into being. Now with us, it's the unique personality that I know as myself or that you know as yourself. We know that's not really you know, you can't find it in any of the parts in the body, but that's also true of every other life form on the planet, whether we're talking about viruses or bacteria or grizzly bears, our trees, it doesn't matter. And the thing is that there's a, um, that's where all of the really interesting stuff begins to happen. There's this intelligent entity that comes into being that then begins to communicate and very carefully watch its boundaries to determine the intent of any other organism that's approaching it. To, and then they have to figure out how to respond. They determine what's going to happen and then they future plan. And so that's sort of a fundamental part of our life here that just it's very rarely taught in schools and uh, it's just not recognized as as crucial as it is. It seems like one of the key issues is the whole concept of mind. And uh, talk about how the mind has come to dominate our thinking as the primary organ and how we've moved away from any kind of heart-based sensory feeling knowledge, uh, like the indigenous people's wisdom that uh, discovered so many plants and herbs uh, with that kind of whole body or heart-based knowing versus mind-based well, ancient indigenous, ancient and indigenous peoples, if they were asked where they live in their body, most of them would gesture to the region of their chest. If you ask somebody in the Western cultures now where they live in their body, most people will point, you know, about an inch above their eyebrows and, you know, about two inches in from the surface of the skull. And consciousness actually can locate itself anywhere in the body. It's fairly unique for a culture to so thoroughly have it located in the brain. And one of the things that happens when that occurs is there begins to be the loss of the empathic sense of the capacity to feel what's going on around us. You know, all of us have the experience of going into a restaurant that we haven't been to before, and we go in and we go, you know, this place feels kind of funny, let's leave. 
that's a kind of sensing that all of us have the capacity for, and it's an incredibly important kind of sensing. It tells us a huge amount of information about our environment. And, you know, Alice Walker had this great thing she said once long ago. She said, you know, as soon as the first black grandmother said her greens tasted like water, the whole country should have screeched to a halt because taste is one of the major ways that we are alerted to something wrong in our food. And at this point, we've eaten poisoned warnings by the ton. The thing is, when we cut off ourselves from our capacity to feel the response of the heart to what's presented to the senses, when we are trained out of that, we begin to ingest poison feelings by the ton. You know, we don't normally ask ourselves, how does this house feel? How does this hospital feel? How does this drug I'm being told to take feel? How does this interaction feel? But those feelings, just like it does when we go to a restaurant, it gives us a huge amount of information about the meanings that we're encountering. And and also that feeling sense, it's one of the major ways that human beings have always gone beyond surfaces to encounter the metaphysical background of the world where deep meanings reside. And we've really been trained to orient ourselves towards surfaces and away from meanings and away from feelings. I was just thinking of many years ago being in the Amazon and asking one of the Schwar leaders about uh, ayahuasca and saying, how did you ever figure out how to put that plant and, and that root together to come up with ayahuasca? And he looked at me with this sad look like, you know, you should be in a mental institution. And he just said, well, the plants told us. Right, and that's one of the fundamental things that ancient and indigenous cultures have recognized is that because everything is intelligent, very similar to the way that we are, that communicability is inherent in everything. You know, they don't use the same kind of language that we use, but all biological organisms are have ways to communicate meaning to their own species, and plants do as well. They have a very sophisticated um, nested series of languages, actually, that they use, and because they're always engaging in very sophisticated communication, and because we can as well, what we can do is kind of move away from language, which, you know, the human language dynamic, and begin to interact through meaning-based communication, similarly to what we did when we were infants. We didn't have language then. We didn't have a thing, you know, a name in the place of the thing. We experienced meanings directly, and that's what the indigenous people are talking about when they say that. It's They're going to the plant directly, and they're engaging in communication. It's not really that unusual. Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize, mm -hmm for her work with corn transposon, said the same thing. She said, I never went any place that the corn did not first tell me to go. And she was clear that they were highly intelligent and that they were engaging in communication, that they were telling her what to do and how to understand them better. So we're saying basically, let's, let's jump back here a little bit. We're saying basically that everything has a way of communicating. I'm just curious, um, the impact of um, 
our own language, spoken language, and the need to have words and verbalize, um, uh, you know, against a meaning-based understanding or what, you know, how does that limit our ability, the fact that we have uh, language and how do the words limit us from understanding the language of other living entities? Well, one of the real problems is that most people who use language are not really consciously working with meanings. They're sort of just using the words that they were sort of picked up as they were growing up as they went to school. You know, you, you mentioned the impact of my writing, and one of the things that I've consciously tried to do in my work for a long time is work with meanings specifically. The words just are sort of the containers for the meaning, and there's a real kind of conscious intention in shaping the meaning and capturing it in a certain way that when somebody else reads that work, they sort of touch the surface of the word and then it breaks open and these meanings kind of spill out inside of them accompanied by a wide range of feelings. So, I mean, we can use language to talk to plants, but what they're really responding to is the deep meanings that are embedded in those words. And what we have to do is be extremely aware of the meanings that we're sending out and be extremely aware of the meanings that are coming back. It's a skill that all human beings learn as they grow unless they're trained out of it. And, you know, most children in the West, they know that everything's alive. They know that plants are intelligent and aware. They know that everything's communicating with them, but they're very specifically taught over and over and over again that they're making that up. And after a while, they just begin to abandon that frame of reference. Um, so in a way, what we're really doing is reclaiming the natural capacity any four-year-old child has for engaging the aliveness of the world. And so really moving from surfaces to the metaphysical background of things to working with meanings and understanding the meanings that, we're, that are touching us and that we're giving out in turn. You know, I, I think that most people want to be liked. Um, most people want to be appreciated. And then we live in a culture which I think that's one of the reasons that uh, we shut down to fit within our culture. I, you know, because if we, if we step out of those boundaries, we become an outcast. How, how can we regain our awareness beyond the confines of what's acceptable in our society or our culture? And talk about the cost, because you've done this. Talk about the cost of doing that. It's a real tough one because we're a tribal species. We have a very deep drive to belong, and one of the major fears every human being has is that of being cast out of the group. And the problem is that, and one of the things I talk about in here is that there's very many people who have perceptual experiences outside of what the culture says is normal. And most of these people struggle their entire life. It's, you know, and I, I make the, you know, the analogy, it's much like people who discovered that they were gay, you know, in the 50s, and they realized that's the way they were, but as soon as they realized that's the way they were, they were immediately in opposition to the cultural norms, and they, they had to do a lot of struggle they had to, in a way, come out to themselves to understand what they were 
and come to accept it and figure out a way to be a human being in that way. And the same thing is true with this. I suppose one of the things that I've really admired a lot, like Barbara McClintock, for instance, or Lynn Margolis, who was the researcher who realized that all life forms we see are, in essence, you know, very complex forms of bacteria, or James Lovelock, who came up with the Gaia theory. Most of these people, they were mavericks, and they got a hold of some truth that they just weren't willing to let go of. And Barbara McClintock was ostracized for 20 years. She was considered the premier geneticist in the world, and then when she started talking about how the genome is a flexible organ of the cell and it can rearrange itself, it so confronted reductionist beliefs, she was ostracized for, for two decades. So, and that, that was after she got a, a Nobel, P, a Nobel no, uh, Prize? No, no, no. Oh, that was before? That was before. Then she gets the Nobel Prize, and all the people go, <laughs> you know, I always liked her. She was, <laughs> you know, yeah. she, we're buds. Right. But that's the same. And my particular focus has been that I'd had a number of experiences as a child. All of us have had them where I was really clear about the livingness of the world around me and that impact and how good it felt. And when I left home at 16, I decided that's what I wanted to figure out. I wanted to understand how that worked. I wanted to live a life filled with that. But in consequence, I spent most of my life being outside and on the fringes. And it demands a great deal of internal self-reflection and a lot of nights where you're just wondering, you know, am I doing the right thing? It's a lonely kind of process. But, you know, oddly enough, as the years have gone by, more and more people are starting to give voice to this sense that that the, the response of the heart to what's presented to the senses, the livingness of the world. And in a lot of ways, we're in the middle of a very deep conflict between two paradigms, one which sees the world as a dead place full of resources that we can use, uh, you know, forever, and another which sees it as a living, intelligent scenario in which we're embedded and from which we're expressed, which demands a certain kind of awareness and intelligent respect on our part to be able to survive here. Yeah, it certainly does. And of course, our our very elite education system helps helps uh, jam people into those small boxes uh, of perception. I just want to tell people, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Stephen Herod Booner about his book, Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm. We're going to take a little music break here and be back in just a few minutes. Thanks so much for listening to We Earth Radio.
You've been listening to Gates of Initiation by In Lakesh on Kootenai Co-op Radio. Just thrilled to have you back, Stephen. I, Thank you. One of the things I want to talk about is there's so much in this book. We really need about ten hours here, yeah. but, uh, or more. But you talk about seeing the world's point of view. Talk about what you mean by that. Okay. Well, I'll back up just a little to get to that. The one of the things that happens during self-organization of a biological organism is a neural network form, mm-hmm. and neural networks are all the same. You know, the, um, they're in slightly different forms when you're looking at bacteria. Nevertheless, they're identical in nature to the one we have. Our neural network is housed in our brain, and a lot of people tend to focus on the brain, but what they re- should really be looking at is the neural network that's embedded within the organ that is the brain. Now, a lot of people have said, well, plants obviously aren't intelligent because they have no brain. The thing is, it's the plant root system that is the brain. It has memory, and it has neurons, and it uses neural synapses, and it uses the same neurotransmitters our brain does. And if you remove the root system from the ground and you remove our neural network from our brain, they look virtually identical. So the thing that happens is, we're embedded in inflows of information all of the time. Uh, we have, even right at this moment, I'm surrounded by trillions upon trillions of bits of visual data that are coming in, but I'm shutting parts of my neural network tend to shut out what it determines is irrelevant. There's maybe, let's say, 20 points in the neural network before the incoming sensory data reaches consciousness. And the thing is that those sensory gates are changing all of the time. If you happen to glance at the, a page of a book, you'll see it's got words on it, but you don't actually do anything with them because the meaning inside the words is being gated out because you don't have time to read. If you sit down and begin reading, pretty soon the words disappear and you're immersed in this world of meanings. You all of a sudden find yourself on a train in Russia or in a rainstorm, and you're going through this marvelous adventure, but the words themselves have disappeared because they're they're no longer being the meanings aren't being gated out. you're working deeper behind the surface. So um, one of the things that happens is all of us can modulate our neural network um, to allow us to slow down and attend to more data in every organism does that. That's And part of what I talk about in the book is the function of hallucinogenic drugs or psychotropic drugs, which have been around for a couple of hundred million years at least in the ecosystem. And one of the things they do is that they allow us to shift our perceptual frame like that. And they do it for every living organism that ingests them in exactly the same way. It, it opens neural gating and so that more and more data is taken in. Yeah, so... so uh... These are doors of perception, these gates, and they start out fairly wide open from what I understand in your book and and other reading. And then as we learn, we uh, then shut out other sensory um, input 
from us. So uh, that's kind of how they work. But how do we uh, learn to throw those doors open wider or override the gating function to expand our perception of the world? Well, it's very normal in all of us to do that. We just don't notice that we're doing it. For instance, in the example of the book I gave, anybody that reads a story that they get involved in, their neural gating has opened really tremendously wide in that process. If we're listening to music and we're becoming really deeply involved in the song, our neural gating has opened. But if you think about both of those circumstances, one of the primary things that goes along with them is our is the feeling sense is extremely um, activated. When people read a story that they're involved in or they're watching a movie, you know, everybody's had this experience of sitting on the edge of their seat, you know, and then something happens in the movie and they jump. It's because they're so deeply involved in feeling so intently what's going on. The real secret of this, I mean, there's a lot of ways that people open the sensory gate. Some people use hallucinogens. Some people meditate. You know, there's all different kinds of things. But one of the, the, the easiest ways to do it is to reactivate the feeling sense. And it's a very simple thing. It's that, that way we go into a restaurant and we go all of a sudden, eh, it feels kind of weird here. That every minute of every day, everything we look at, we go, how does it feel? How does this table feel? We look at a chair. How does it feel? And there'll be this kind of feeling impulse. The, you know, the Kalahari and the, uh, my brain just went blank, the tribe of uh, natives, of the tribal people in the Kalahari Desert. Um, to, I All think I can we, think of is Bushmen. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the Bushmen of the Kalahari, exactly. Right. And what they do is they talk about as a human being grows, they're, one of their functions is to develop a library of feelings about the world. In other words, everything they see, they go, how does it feel? How does it feel? And inside themselves, they're building this tremendous library of feelings because it's those feelings that allow them to find their way through the meanings of the world, to find what they call the track to God. It's how they, they hunt because certain feelings will touch them, what they call a tapping, and they'll be much stronger. And William Stafford, the poet, talked about that a lot. He would be going along, and all of a sudden, something would catch his feeling attention, and he would turn to it and then begin to write poetry about it. And he said, this is a normal you know, experience for anybody that hasn't been corrupted by mechanical ways. And so what we're really doing is we're reclaiming a kind of perception that we were trained out of when we began school at six years old, and it takes a while. But the real secret is always asking yourself, how does this feel? How does this feel? How does that feel? Until you've reclaimed that sense as a primary way of interacting with the world. And that naturally begins to open sensory gating much more widely than it is every day. You know, my my way of overriding that is through movement is another great way. And, of course, Bradford Keeney that you mentioned and who will be on our show, I think, next month again, talks about that with the Bushmen and the Kalahari, that there is something that happens in movement. And I studied from the early 70s with Gabrielle Roth. And there's, a, there's this thing that happens when we move our body, we disengage that logical, linear kind of thinking, and that feeling sense opens up and drops us into our heart. So many ways to get, right. and get into that And most people don't realize the body, you know, we're suffering from this division where we, we think we can have mind without body, right. you know, or spirit without body. It's really 
that thing that's more than the sum of the parts comes into being as our body self-organizes and we come into the world and so when we allow our body consciousness to rec- when we reclaim that body consciousness and allow it to live you know rather than dragging this dead hulk of you know material matter behind our brains as we walk around the world when we fully embody and become an inhabitant a happy inhabitant of this body that naturally begins to activate the feeling sense again and then it opens those channels much more widely yeah absolutely yeah i was just thinking one of one of the most unexamined beliefs i think of numerous ones uh but um is that we we have this belief that the capacity for self-awareness, for intelligence, for the search for meaning are solely human. You really challenge that notion in in uh, plant intelligence and uh, say that these are general conditions of every living organism and every living system. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, one of the things that's really important to understand is that you know, Darwin himself did not, you know, if he heard what the neo-Darwinians were saying that Darwinism now is, now he would be highly offended because he was really clear that most of what they say is Darwinism. He he said that's not accurate, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, he had a sign in his office, he said, there is no higher or lower. Mm. You know, human beings are not the apex of creation. They're just part of the fabric. and. You know, the the thing is, there's no living organism on this planet that exists except to fulfill certain ecological function. Everything is expressed out of the background of the planet. And we've given been given this weird picture of there's this blind striving, you know, and that, you know, we're clawing our way up from the, you know, primordial ooze, you know, till we stand on the top of the pyramid, you know, the only intelligent... And, you know, and I love it when people say, you know, these reductive scientists go, well, human beings are the most intelligent, you know, organism on the planet. And I always go, don't you ever read the news? How many people have you met? <laughs> have you seen what's going on here? If we're the most intelligent organism on the planet, the planet's in a lot of trouble, you know. <laughs> so the thing is, everything we have is only a, a specific form of a general condition. You know, those things, neural networks have been present in the planet for three and a half to four billion years. The neurochemicals that we use have been present for that long as well. Neural networks have been around for that long. Everything has been around. And see, this information has been carefully hidden in books where, you know, most researchers can't find it. Part of the problem is they're all stuck in these tiny disciplines and they never really look outside their tiny world. But when you start looking at what people are really finding, what researchers who aren't blinded by that reductive framework are finding, it's not like I'm making this stuff up. I quote extensively in the book from leading researchers in the field who have been saying, hey, wait a second, you know, this this is true of all of these organisms. And if we're going to survive here, if our culture or our civilization of human beings are going to survive, we're going to have to understand that everything is intelligent out there because they're getting really upset with what we're doing and we need to change our behavior 
remarkably. And, you know, I go through it really step by step. And, I, you know, I think it's fascinating that the first person to identify in writing where the plant brain was located was Darwin. He was really clear that plants were intelligent, but of course that's not one of his books that's commonly read. So yeah. this stuff is its common, it's out there, it's just not taught in the schools. Like Buckminster Fuller said, the school system tends to run about 100 years behind the times, and that's certainly accurate. Maybe more than that. <laughs> um, you know, I want to step back to something you said to, to pull it out a little bit, because you said something to the effect that everything, every living thing exists to fulfill a function. So what about humans? What, you know, that, that has big implications then for the way we live our lives. H how do we discover what our function in the world is? Well, the, there's two really responses to that. What, one's our, what is our individual function and what's our species function? Right. You know, I mean, one of the, even amongst environmentalists, you know, environmentalists are one of the groups that trust the Earth least of anybody, you know, and there's this whole thing about we have to save the Earth and we have to do all this stuff. The Earth doesn't need saving. It's not in trouble. <laughs> it's the environmentalists and the species, us. You know, our species is what, our, it's really our civilization that's in trouble. Yeah. The human species will most likely endure just fine, just not in its current kind of technological shape, but our civilization's definitely in trouble because it's built on resource extraction. But, you know, when in, when people look at the environment and ecology and, and all of that, they, they are always like looking at what do trees do, what do grizzly bears do. But I'd never seen anywhere anybody until I started really grabbing hold of this about 10 years ago, ask the question, what's the ecological function of the human species? And that's a crucial thing to understand, you know, the Earth, Gaia, does not express life forms for no reason. Each one is meant to help fulfill some ecological function, some ecological drive that Gaia is working with, and, and it's a holistic dynamic. It's not a, a reductive kind of thing. You know, it's really embarrassing. They say, oh, yeah, when human beings, you know, arrived, for the first time the universe became conscious of itself. I was like, hey, this is like, it's so hubristic, but <laughs> but if you start really looking at what's happening, you know, I kind of got to this because of something Richard Dawkins said too. He said, uh, "Richard Dawkins, yeah, yeah Richard okay. Dawkins, who I really dislike." But anyway, <laughs> I was gonna, I was surprised. <laughs> well, Richard Dawkins said, "You know, Gaia isn't alive because Gaia doesn't reproduce." Ah, uh, yes. Now I thought. That's an amazing statement. Somebody that's going to live about 80 years is pronouncing this fact about an organism that's, you know, 4 billion years old, let's say. How does it, what, if it, what if guy only reproduces once every billion years or once every 100 million years or once every 50 million? We would never see it, you know, so how does he know? But then, you know, then the next thing I heard is that people were talking about, well, how did life originate on Earth? And they were always talking about, well, you know, meteors hit here and they had bacteria from other planets and those bacteria, you know, made this membrane around the Earth and Gaia comes into being and then they made more complex forms and then that's, that's the way life happened. But the interesting thing is the human beings drive to create this technological civilization and send space probes out. The space probes, interestingly enough, that look very much like bacteria, our fungal spores. I mean, that's astonishing the the similarity. 
And all of those things that we're sending out into the universe are just filled with bacteria and viruses and various microorganisms. And they've found the, you know, and I, and once I wrote the book and the book came out and I was talking about this, there was about every week for a couple of months, there was something new about that coming out. And on the Mars lander, they found that there were over 325 various microorganisms in that, even though it was done in a clean room, and that 11 of them have survived the Martian atmosphere and that travel to that planet. So we've essentially inseminated Mars with these Gaian bacterial forms, and it took about 500 million years to a billion years for Gaia to form, for life to really sort of come into being the way that it is here on a planetary level. Life takes a long time, but we've actually been very much like pollinators sending out these bacteria-filled probes all through the solar system and all through the universe. And Buckminster Fuller a long time ago said, you know, we're like bees, you see, bees who go out looking for honey, not realizing that we're performing cross-pollinization. I love that. So I think that's part of the drive that human beings have had to do that. And we've been using up the stored resources of the planet very much the way a plant uses up its stored resources to set seed and send them out into the world. And it begins looking a little ragged at the end of the year and right before the winter comes. And that's kind of the situation the Earth is in now, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. You know, when I read that and was thinking about that, I I was thinking about, well, that's that may also be evolving because everything else is evolving. When we talk about you know, the, from bacteria to fungi and all the different systems, how they evolved based on, on how everything else is evolving. So, and you made a statement in your book, something to the effect that in the, since the 60s or 70s, there's been this huge phenomena of people being interested in learning about herbalism. And at the same time that that's happening, We've got uh, antibiotics that are going to be useless in just a very few years and so many other uh, things that will not, you know, uh, that are uh, put out by drug companies that will have no value at all for healing. And there's this resurgence of herbalism. So perhaps something about our nature right now is to go beyond the initial consciousness of both children and ancient people, but also to wake up to the very thing we're talking about, that we live in a living system and we are an integral part of that system. We are. I mean, one of the points I, I wanted to make about talking about the ecological function of the human species is there's been way too much stuff about human beings are a plague, human beings are a cancer, and there's been this sort of institutionalized self-hatred that's become a real part of my liberal tribe for a very long time. And I went through it. It's sort of a part of the growth of awareness to see that and to, to work to come to terms with it. And I wanted to change the conversation to understand for people to get Gaia doesn't make mistakes of this kind of magnitude. Gaia doesn't create an organism that's <laughs> going to destroy the planet like that. The, that once you understand that Gaia is highly intelligent and that there's meaning in the movements of things that happen, then, I mean, that's how James Lovelock came to understand Gaia when he understood that 
you know, oxygen is a highly reactive gas. It won't stay in the atmosphere the way it does here unless it's artificially kept that way. The temperature of the planet is very unusual. It's kept within a certain range, and it won't do that unless something artificially keeps it that way. And that's where he began to understand the Earth acts as this self-regulating superorganism that's highly aware and intelligent. Of course, everybody's fighting about that now. Is it deep Gaia? Is it shallow Gaia? You know, what are we going to call it? Oh, we hate the word Gaia and all of that stuff. But the thing is, when you start understanding that Gaia is engaging in this really sophisticated modulation of the environment here, then you start to be able to look, you have to look sort of sideways to your normal orientation, 90 degrees to your normal point of view. And there's certain shadows that Gaian functioning casts, you know, that we can perceive. Like, for instance, you know, I've taught herbalists for over 20 years, and I would go around to conferences, and for about 10 years I would ask people, I'd say, well, why did you decide to become an herbalist? And virtually every, literally thousands of people, virtually every answer was, you know, I don't know, I just felt like I should. Now, that's weird. You think about it, so I would say, well, look, so you're, you're spending thousands of dollars and years training in a profession you can't legally practice just because you felt like you should. And they go, uh-huh, that's right. I was like, how many plumbers do you mean? Well, I just, you know, I just wanted to work with pipe. I just felt like I should. You never hear that. <laughs> so this thing about that, and then I began to notice that the growth of these, this herbal movement was happening right along with the growth of resistant bacteria, and it's kind of reaching peak at the same time resistant bacteria are, that antibiotics are about to fail. And most people don't realize that all of the pharmaceutical companies have closed their R&D departments for antibiotics. They're, they're out of the antibiotic business. And all of the bacteriologists who studied this said, yeah, we've got two or three in the pipeline and then that's it. We will be able to do nothing. Yeah. But of course, plants are extremely effective for treating these kind of resistant organisms. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of our call, and I, I don't think it would be a good show if we didn't talk about sex. So um, uh, talk about sex and living organisms, and is it true that bacteria really sleep around? And, and what's the impact of that? Yeah, they do. It's like, I love <laughs> Lynn Margolis's work. I mean, she was just so outrageous. You know, she's talking about, because bacteria invented sex, and then they invented hypersex, which I love that term. Because as soon as you say, oh, hypersex, everybody's going, hmm, they create all these images. But literally everything around us is having sex all the time. And it makes it very difficult to see the world, to see the environment, to see Gaia, if you have that Puritan stuff inside you interfering with you, coming to terms with your own sexuality, it's like, you know, once I realized that sex was ubiquitous, and it took me a long time because I'm stuck in my own <laughs> limited viewpoint too, but it's like when I realized that the female reproductive system is based on the reproductive system of flowers, they're virtually identical, just morphed for a different, you know, function, but then, you know, and, I, and in the herbal world, there were a lot of people that were using, you know, phytoestrogens, you know, to help normalize female reproductive systems. Then I started thinking, well, what about phytoandrogens? It was a question that took me 10 years to ask myself. And then I began looking, and it turns out, for instance, pine pollen 
is extremely high in testosterone. It's the it's you know chemically identical to the testosterone in our bodies. It's extremely in high quantities in there. And then I started looking and seeing this all around the world. Then it became clear the deeper I looked that, of course, flowers menstruate, just like human women do. And well, what that is called is it's called the nectar of the flower, and it acts to sterilize the vaginal passageways in women just the way it does in flowers. And then so you begin to see this sex dynamic going through everything, and it's one of the great Gaian innovations, you know, to help stimulate diversity in the genome mingling. It's like it, Gaia's gone through a lot of innovations of discovery, and when something works, then Gaia begins to use that everywhere. It's what Gregory Bateson called a meta-pattern. And so, you know, in, in a way, our Puritan upbringing and the Americans' discomfort with sex, it makes it extremely difficult to really see the world around us because literally everything is having sex all the time. It's a bloody orgy out there. It is a bloody orgy out there. <laughs> Oh, dear. There's so many more questions I have of you, Stephen. I'm trying to think. Well, you tell me what. There's so many things I haven't covered. I really want people to be able to leave this show seeing how they can open their gates of perception and seeing some of the ways that they can begin to feel, move to a heart-centered way of, of being and thinking from a head-based uh, Let's let's have let's have some comments about that as we begin to come to a close here. Well, you know, I, I, there is a friend of mine who goes to France quite often, and he was there a number of years ago during a bunch of protests. And there was a young French woman, about twenty-three, carrying a sign that said, "Contemplation is the first act of disobedience." I thought hmm. I've never seen anything like that in America. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> That's great, and. For me, the first act of disobedience is reclaiming the feeling sense. There isn't anything more revolutionary that a human being can do because it then begins to give us information about everything that's happening to us and how often that we're convinced to do things that we know something is wrong with it because it doesn't feel right, but we're trained to override our feeling sense by these strange practical considerations that often in hindsight are just ways to confuse us out of doing what our feeling sense is telling us. And, you know, that feeling sense, what happens is when you reclaim that and then you begin to contemplate what it is, it begins to change everything. And, you know, I always tell people not to disavow their feelings. Those are the most important clues that they can have to what they're meant to do, what their own individual drive is telling them to do in this lifetime so that they don't get to the end of their life and they're laying on their deathbed and they look back and they go, I wasted the whole thing. It's like, what? that's what happened to my parents. What a horrible thing. And so to trust the feelings that they have and then follow them as the golden threads they are and find out where it's going to take them. It's going to be a marvelous adventure. Indeed it is. And I just want to say that this book is a marvelous adventure and constantly brings us back to how do we feel as we deepen our relationship to the natural world, uh, to Gaia and to uh, really other 
other species, including our own, but also our own species, plant intelligence and the imaginal realm. You can listen to this show if you missed it on my website uh, in the next couple days, welloflight.com. Just go there and click on Conversations and go to Listen. And also you can uh, find out more about Stephen's work by going to gaianstudies.org, G-A-I-A-N studies.org. Just want to say, Stephen, again, how how wonderful it is to have you on. One day we'll have to do a two or three hour show, so yeah, we that can would be great. Actually, get through a whole book. That would be great. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. I look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Okay. Be well. Bye bye. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.